Good morning. Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 4 or click to Exodus chapter 4 on your phone. That's where we're going to be camping out today. And while you're turning there, let me first of all say thank you to the, the ones who helped out with the Yes Conference uh, this past weekend. And uh, I'm glad that you are awake and alive and no, no injuries. And more importantly, though, uh, I really believe the, the students... Uh, learned something. I, I know Eli came to me when we got done and said that was one of the best speakers he's ever heard. And so uh, I'm excited that they're excited about telling other people about Jesus. That's the most that we could ever get out of a conference. And so super excited about that. Thank you so much for, for those who helped out with that in many ways. All right, Exodus chapter 4, we've been walking through. If you're new with us, first of all, my name's Nate, one of the pastors here, and so glad that you've come to join us. We've uh, been walking through the book of Exodus for a few months now, since the beginning of January, actually, and we're actually going to take a break from Exodus, a short break from Exodus, starting next week. We're going to have a, a short mini-series leading up to Easter called Overcoming. Perry's going to talk a little bit more about that at the end, but today we're going to finish off chapter 4, so we're looking at verses 18 to 31. This is... Of course, our favorite way to teach the Bible is to walk through whole books of the Bible to make sure you understand the context of what's going on. I don't want to share my opinions. I want to share what God intended, uh, what he inspired these authors, and what, was, what they intended for us to understand. And so that's our prayer today, is that we would grow as we better understand that. And so to give you some context, of course, the Israelites are in slavery still in Egypt they're, they've been crying out to God, help us, help us, and God has responded by raising up Moses, of all people, to take them out of Egypt and to the promised land. And so through these first few chapters, we've seen God's character. We've seen his providence. We've seen his sovereignty. We've seen God working behind the scenes to orchestrate everything to make sure his mission gets accomplished. We've seen uh, also highlighted God's faithfulness to keep his promises, his promises from back in Genesis. We see his holiness, but we also see his compassion in these first few chapters. Last week, we looked at God's sufficiency as he removed excuse after excuse after excuse that Moses had and basically said that, look, Moses, whatever you can't do, I can do. I am who I am. This week, we're going to continue to see God reveal his character. And my hope and my prayer is that it will lead us to a, a, a deeper reliance on him and a, a sweeter affection towards him. And as we walk through this passage, you're going to see three different scenes, potentially four. You could break the third scene into two if you wanted to. But there's three primary scenes. And I want to challenge you as I'm reading this to see, and if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do this. You can, if you got the bulletin, you can see where I, all I have is there scene one, scene two, scene three. So I'm going to challenge you to see if you can figure out what the three scenes are, and I'm going to challenge you to see if you can figure out what characteristic of God is being highlighted in each one of these scenes, okay? And so this is an open book test. You can use your Bibles. would encourage you to look at your Bibles as I'm reading this, and I'll, I'll give you the answers here in a minute, though. All right, so let's pray first, and then we'll pick up in chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And 
I come before you right now and recognize and this is a challenging passage. This is a difficult passage. A lot of things in here that are difficult to understand. And so I pray that it would that your spirit would help us to understand and more than that, that your spirit would help us to see the significance of this passage in our life today. I pray that it would change our hearts. And I pray that it would cause us to worship you and praise you for interceding for us. Help us to fall deeply in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So this is, a, like I said, a very challenging passage. You're going to hear me say the word perhaps several times today because there's several things in this passage that I'm not real certain about. Uh, sometimes you, you come to that, those kind of passages in the Bible. This is what, the, what I tend to see, though, in these kind of difficult passages. They also tend to be the richest treasure. You just got to dig a little deeper for the treasure. And so hang in with me as we go through these three scenes. See if you can figure the scenes out and see if you can figure out what characteristic of God is being highlighted. Verse 18. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him. Okay, so this is, this is Moses just about, Moses has already been uh, confronted by God in the, uh, with a burning bush. And God has told Moses, go back. Okay, so right before he goes back, what does he do? Moses went to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, this is his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he, God, let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. All right. So here's the outline. So see how you did. 
Here's the answer to your, your quiz. So scene number one, which is verses 18 to 23, uh, this is Moses prepares to go, right? Okay, so this is the first scene, and the highlighted characteristic of God that I see in this passage, and you could probably pick another one too, but is, it's the sovereignty of God. I see the sovereignty of God in that scene. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. Scene number two, which is verses 24 to 26, this is where they're at this lodging place. This is a strange passage right here. This highlights the holiness of God. And then the third scene, which you could make an argument, could be broken down into two separate scenes because you've got, so the scene is reuniting with Aaron and you've got them on the Mount of Horeb and then you also have them in Egypt. Uh, but this highlights really the faithfulness of God. So that's where we're heading in this text. Let's start with scene one. Moses prepares to go. So scene one begins with Moses asking permission of his father-in-law, Jethro, if he can go back to Egypt. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't share very many details with Jethro, right? And maybe this is because he doesn't want Jethro, his father-in-law, to think he's crazy. I know if, if uh, Hannah's future husband, my daughter's future husband, someday came to me and said, you know what, God appeared to me in a burning bush and has told me to go and pick a fight with the most powerful man in the world. And do you mind if I take your daughter with you? I don't know that I would have the same response as Jethro did here, uh, go in peace, right? Uh, we'll see Jethro again, though. He, he's a good man. We'll see him in, in chapter 18 when we get to it. Now, next, God says to Moses, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, I wonder, perhaps, God is preventing Moses from coming up with still another excuse here, right? This is one excuse that Moses hasn't used yet. Because remember, Moses left Egypt not on good terms. They wanted to kill him because he had murdered an Egyptian. And so uh, God encourages him and says, look, they're all, they're all dead. So you can go back now. Uh, you also hear, though, you, you see here Moses' character. Moses, he recognizes that the call of God does not negate his responsibility to care for his family. And so he takes his wife, he takes his two sons, he puts them on a donkey... We'll talk about that in a minute. And he takes them to Egypt. Moses also then took the staff of God in his hand. Okay, so this is the staff that turns into a snake, right? This is the staff that will be very significant moving forward. And notice it's no longer the staff of Moses, it's the staff of God. Moses would use this, but ultimately this is God's staff and it's, there's symbolism here. This is a reminder to Moses and the Israelites that God is with Moses, that God is the authority, and Moses is wielding God's power. He speaks for God. So this is a significant staff. It's the staff of God. We'll see that staff later on also. Now, before Moses leaves, God has one more word for Moses. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now first, notice God tells Moses to do all the miracles that he gave him, the three miracles that he had given him, the uh, the, the staff that turns into the snake, his, his hand that turns, uh, leprosy, turns into leprosy and then is healed, the, the water from the Nile that turns into blood. He says, do them all for Pharaoh because he wants Pharaoh to have no excuse. He wants it to be crystal clear in Pharaoh's mind that Moses 
is speaking on God's behalf. And yet the miracles won't be enough to convince Pharaoh. Why? Because God will harden his heart. This is one of those tough passages, right? This is one of those tough passages. This is, this is a passage that raises all sorts of questions. Questions about God's sovereignty and man's free will. God's, questions about God's justice and man's responsibility. I mean, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart just so he could judge Egypt more severely and, and send even greater plagues? If I'm Moses, I might be asking God, okay, why do you want to make things even harder than they already are? Well, we're going to see this theme of Pharaoh's heart being hardened several times over the next chapters. And it's interesting. Sometimes God is the one who's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Other times, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And also sometimes it's just kind of ambiguous. His heart is just hardened. We don't know why. So it seems, though, that both Pharaoh and God play a role in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I want you to remember, Pharaoh is not innocent by any means. Okay? He's already shown his rebellion by enslaving the Israelites, and he comes from a line of sinners. I mean, his predecessor was the one that tried to kill all the, the baby Israelites, right? The baby boy Israelites. And so perhaps Pharaoh, his heart was, or his heart was already hardened, and God uh, after a while, just hardens it a little bit more so that he can accomplish his mission. So why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, perhaps it's uh, Exodus 9.16 alludes to uh, the reason. Uh, Exodus 9.16, but for this purpose, God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so perhaps God's hardened Pharaoh's heart to show that he is in complete control of this situation. That he's going to deliver his people in the way in which he wants to deliver his people. The Egyptians looked at Pharaoh, and Pharaoh looked at himself as a god. And so this is the true God saying that, look, no, Pharaoh, you're, you're a puny god. <laughs> you're nothing. I am completely sovereign over Pharaoh. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so God, by hardening Pharaoh's heart, made sure that he got all the plagues in. All ten plagues had to come. And we're going to study, as we study each one of the plagues, we're going to see why they were significant and how each one of those plagues reveals a little bit more of God's character, a little bit more of God's glory until you get to the final plague, right? Which God actually alludes to in this passage when God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh after he refuses to let my people, he says, tell Pharaoh this, that Israel is my firstborn son and I say to you, let my son go and to serve me and if you refuse let, to let him go, behold, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. What's that alluding to? That's alluding to that tenth plague, the final plague. And so the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is leading to this, this moment where God would strike down all of the Egyptian firstborn and yet would have mercy on the Israelites. He'd pass over the Israelites who by faith were obedient to sacrifice a spotless lamb to put the blood of that lamb on their door frames. 
the hardening of Pharaoh's heart led to a foreshadow, a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we may not fully understand all of God's ways, but we do know this, that his purposes are always good, are always right, and are always glorious. Now, this ultimatum that God tells Moses to give Pharaoh, uh, tells Moses to give Pharaoh that, look, Israel is my firstborn son, and if you don't let them go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. That ultimatum, I think, might help us understand scene number two a little bit better. Okay, so scene number two, this is a very strange passage. Uh, this is one of those passages that they give you in a seminary class on preaching and say, good luck. Uh, they're at the lodging place, and you, you read this in verse 24, at, at a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So who's him? Most translations will put the word Moses in there, but in the original text, it's just a, it's a pronoun. It's just the word him. And so it could be Moses, or it could actually be uh, Gershom. Moses' firstborn son. Now, remember, this is coming on the heels of God threatening to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son if, he doesn't, if he's not obedient. And so here we've got an example of Moses not being obedient. And so I, I don't know for sure, but it seems like he may be talking about Gershom here. Now, the phrase, put him to death, it can also mean to bring someone to the brink of death. And so perhaps God has struck Moses or struck his son with some kind of terrible illness. Notice who comes to the plate to rescue them. It's Zipporah. It's Moses' wife. And somehow she knows exactly what to do. This is true of most women, I think. But somehow she knows exactly what to do to appease God and to save them from his wrath. Look at verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. So somehow, Zipporah, who is the daughter of a Midianite priest, knows that her son needs to be circumcised. So circumcision was a really big deal for the Jews. It was a sign of the covenant relationship that they had between God and themselves. In Genesis chapter 17, you, you can read about how important, significant circumcision was. It's required by God. In fact, he says in verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so being in covenant with God was huge. And circumcision was a constant reminder of the seriousness of sin, of rebelling against God. It was a reminder that there was a need for blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. And it was also a reminder of the intense pain that sin would cause God's own son. And so for all of those who were in the covenant with God, there was grace, there was mercy, there was forgiveness, there was life. But everyone who was outside that covenant, there was only judgment and death. Circumcision is a big deal. Now, we really don't know how Zipporah 
knew in this moment that she needed to act quickly to intercede on behalf of, of Moses. Perhaps she'd been taught by, about the Jews by her father. Her, the, the ancestry of her father goes back all the way to Abraham. Uh, perhaps Moses had at some point told her about circumcision. Perhaps God came to her in a vision. We don't know. But this is what we've got. We've got Moses here who's been called by God to go to the covenant people of Israel to lead them to the promised land, and he's failed to circumcise his own son. And God says, nope, can't have that. Now, why doesn't Moses do the circumcision himself? Perhaps he's too sick. Perhaps he's incapacitated. He's too ill, and this is why Zipporah has to step up. Or perhaps he's just simply dumbstruck, doesn't know what to do. Dear in the headlights kind of thing. Regardless, I think it's significant that Moses, the one that God has sent to be an intercessor for the Israelites, for God's people, needed an intercessor on his way there. And once again, we see that there's a woman playing a significant role in the redemption of God's people. So here, we've got Zipporah, who is riding on a donkey, interceding on Moses' behalf by offering a bloody sacrifice for the one she loves. Sounds like somebody we know, right? Who rode on into town on a donkey, offered a bloody sacrifice for the ones he loved. The scene is meant to remind us of God's holiness and the seriousness of our own sinfulness. God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. He is just. The consequence for sin is death. And as a sinner... We have no hope apart from somebody else interceding on our behalf. And yet we also are reminded of God's grace in this passage. That not only does he allow for somebody to intercede on our behalf, he provides the intercessor. Like Moses, while we were incapacitated, while we were dumbstruck, while Paul says while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for us. Now there's a, there's a lot of debate about what is meant when Zipporah says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, and, and, and what is meant by her touching the foreskin to Moses' feet. Some scholars believe that this may, be, may have been a, a Midianite phrase, meaning that through blood we are bonded together. It was typical for a Midianite uh, man before he was married to be circumcised. Um, well, evidently what she said was right, though, because... In that moment, God relents, and they're able to move on to Egypt. Now, it, the text says it was Moses and Aaron that moved on to Egypt. And I think this may be the point where Moses sends Zipporah and his two sons back to Jethro. They don't appear again until chapter 18, where it says that Moses had sent them back. So this may have been the point where he does that. But this leads us to our third scene. This is Moses being reunited to his brother Aaron. And in this scene, we see God is very faithful to his promises. And it ultimately leads to Israel being faithful. Uh, it leads to them believing, leads to them worshiping, being obedient, and ultimately to their freedom. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and he met with him at the mountain of God and he kissed him. And so here we are, we're back at Mount Horeb, or also known as Mount Sinai. This is the, 
mountain of God. This is the place where Moses is going to receive the Ten Commandments, right? And this is, uh, this is a significant hike, I think, for Aaron. Uh, we don't exactly know where Mount Sinai is. This implies that it's somewhere between Midian and Egypt. Something I missed last week, look back at verse 14. It says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. This is right after Moses pleaded with God, Hey, can you send somebody else? And Moses says, or God says to Moses, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, listen to this, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Okay, so this is back in verse 14. This is before uh, the passage that we're looking at today. And in fact, the NIV translates it as, he, has already, he is already on his way to meet you. So the plan, God's plan, before Moses even asked God, hey, can you send somebody else? His plan was to send Aaron to help him. You can see God working behind the scenes, orchestrating this to accomplish his mission. Again, he's faithful. And he meets Moses. Aaron gladly reunites with him. And again, God predicts this, right? That he would be glad in his heart when he sees Moses. He hasn't seen Moses for many years. He sees him and he kisses him. And this is just a, this is a common greeting back then. This is like a hearty hug uh, between brothers, right? And so they're happy. And once, once again, we, we see God orchestrating all of this. And Moses shares with Aaron all that God had told him. And notice, there, there's no record of Aaron questioning the plan. Perhaps Moses is just speeding up the story here, though. More than likely, I think that Aaron is probably one of the elders of Israel. He's able to gather all the, they go back to Egypt and Aaron is able to gather all the elders together to introduce his brother to him. Many of them have probably not met Moses. Maybe they've heard stories about him, but it seems that Aaron gave him instant credibility. This, this is similar to when Barnabas in the New Testament introduces Paul to the disciples and gave Paul some credibility. Aaron's able to do that with Moses and the elders in Israel. And so they say, Aaron says everything that Moses tells him to say, that God told Moses to say, and does the miracles in front of them. Perhaps he may not have had to do the third miracle with them. That was kind of an optional miracle, the, the blood from the Nile into blood. We don't know that for sure. Verse 31, though, we do know this. They believed, and the people believed. They trusted God's word. They trusted God's promises delivered through Moses and Aaron. In other words, they placed their faith in God for salvation. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is God's aim. This is the end game to redeem a people who would trust him, who would obey him, who would worship him, and who would display his glory. That's what this is leading to. And so what does this mean for us today? Two applications that I want to talk about. Uh, first application is this. Pray for God to change hearts. We see God's power to change hearts in this passage. He has the power to impact the heart of Pharaoh, to harden Pharaoh's heart. God is in the business of changing hearts, and that should give us a whole lot of comfort. That should give us a whole lot of hope. Because no, if, if he can mess with Pharaoh's heart, he can change anybody's heart. I mean, think about, think about uh, the Apostle Paul. I mean, he used to 
persecute Christians before God captured his heart. And so we ought to pray for God to change heart. And God has promised in the new covenant to soften hearts, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. David prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so we should be praying that God would change our hearts. There is nothing There is nothing that you are stuck in right now that God can't get you out of. God can change your heart. And there is nothing that your kids are into right now that he can't get them out of. Because he can change their hearts. We ought to be praying for the hearts of others in our own hearts. Author John Bloom, he suggests seven ways to pray for your heart. And I like these. I'm going to put these up on the board And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write these down. Uh, They're they're easy to remember because they all start with the letter D, okay? So in classic Baptist form, seven points starting with the same letter. Number one, pray for your heart to delight. Lord, give me delight in you as the greatest treasure of my heart. Number two, pray for your heart's desires. Lord, align the desires of my heart with yours. Number three, dependence. Lord, increase my awareness of my dependence on you, my need to depend on you and everything so that I would live continually by by faith. Help me to understand that I am insufficient, but you are sufficient. Number four, discernment. Lord, teach me to discern good from evil by being disciplined to study the truth of your word. Number five, desperation. Lord, keep me desperate for you because I tend to wander when I stop feeling my need for you. Help me to be desperate for you. Number six, discipline. Lord, discipline me. We ought to pray that God would discipline our hearts, that he would... He would train us and teach us and discipline me for my good so that I may share your holiness and bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And number seven, diligence. Whatever it takes, Lord, increase my resolve to do your will with all diligence. In other words, help us be faithful. Help us be consistent. Help us to have self-control. Help us to be diligent in our walk with you, Lord. So this week, let me encourage you, pray for your heart and pray for the hearts of others. Parents, more than praying for your kids' protection or your kids' success, you ought to pray for their hearts. And I'm preaching to myself right here too. Kids, pray for the hearts of your parents. We covet your prayers. about social media? I'm going to start stepping on some toes here. Just warning you. Social media. Instead of looking at social media as entertainment or some kind of escape, what if social media became a chance for you to pray intentionally for the hearts of those people that are in your feed? Instead of watching the news or, or reading the news and allowing your heart 
to be consumed with cynicism because you look at the direction of our country? What if we used the news feed to pray for our leaders? Let's be a church that is known for our name, mercy. Let's be a church that's known for compassion and grace and hope and prayerfulness for our country rather than a church that's known for complaining about the direction of our country. What if that, what if that trailer, when we're serving this week, I know it's known as the truth trailer because you get some pretty deep conversations in there. What if it became the prayer trailer? We spent time praying intentionally for the hearts of those that we are serving. When you see evil growing in our country, it should cause us to grieve. It should cause us to lament. And, and maybe even it should cause us some righteous anger. But listen, righteous anger never leads to despair or grumbling or cynicism. Righteous anger always leads to speaking the truth in love Trusting God and looking at the direction of our nation as an opportunity for God to show off his glory just like he did in Egypt. Pray for the heart of our nation. And then lastly, this text should cause us to praise God for interceding on your behalf, on my behalf. I mean, what a wonderful reminder of the gospel that we have here again. Praise God that he was willing to intercede on our behalf by offering his one and only son. Praise God that Jesus was willing to shed his own blood on our behalf and, and call us his bride. Praise God that we can look at Jesus and call him our bridegroom of blood. And so let's pray right now that God would impact our hearts and ultimately lead us to worship him. Father, thank you so much for this, this word. And I do pray for our hearts. I pray for the hearts of our nations, our leaders. I pray for those that we're serving in our community that desperately need their hearts to be drawn towards you. I pray that you would open up their eyes to see your beauty, to see your glory. I pray that you would help us to trust you, help our unbelief. Father, work on our delight. Help us delight in you above everything else in this world. Help us to treasure you. Help us to desire you. Align our desires with your desires. Help us to depend upon you but, uh, and help us to know that we are insufficient, but you are sufficient. Lord, help us discern what is good and what is evil. Help us to speak graciously and lovingly when we see evil. And help us to be dis disciplined to know what is good and evil by studying your word. Help us to be desperate for you, Lord. Help us to be disciplined by you, Lord, so that when we're going off on a bad path, you lovingly, and we know that you lovingly discipline us. And help us to be diligent in this, Lord. Help us remain faithful to you. And lead, lead our hearts to worship you for interceding on our behalf. We deserve none of this, Lord. None of your grace. So we thank you and we praise you for the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So if you're a visitor with us, we, uh, we celebrate communion every single week because Jesus gave the gift of communion as a reminder of his sacrifice for us. And so if you didn't get a chance on the way in, there's some cups with juice and with a piece of bread, and that juice represents the blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. That bread represents his body given to us. 
And so this is an opportunity for you to get alone with God.